He's probably the most prolific coach in the last few years. Lion City Sailors head coach Aurelio Vitma is here with us on this episode. He's captain and coached the Australian national team and is now in Singapore to make a mark. Aurelio Vidma is in the studio and he talks to us about the standard of our local footballers and playing against Diego Maradona. And why does he feel it's time for Singapore football to wake up? Listen on and find out on this episode. Kabi, we've had a number of coaches in the past few episodes. Uh, you're a Tampanese fan, of course. Yeah. And uh, one of the greatest coaches in the league has been Borawan. <laughs> uh, and there's always a debate of local coaches and uh, versus foreign coaches. Mm. Where do you stand on that? Um, it's always good to have a mix of foreign and local coaches in the league. Uh, foreign coaches bring fresh ideas. And I'm sure um, that the, the coaches that come to the league are here because they bring in something local coaches don't. I'm not mm. saying anything. I'm not saying that local coaches don't are, are not good enough mm-hmm. but yeah fresh ideas fresh and all. ideas basically yeah, and this applies to all leagues not just Singapore mm-hmm. I think we've got to respect the talents that come here be it players or coaches uh, when you when you look up our guest today on the internet you soon realise that he had an exceptional career with club and country it's not something most people here talk about actually mm-hmm. like I think we were discussing uh, before today like you know how yeah. when he was appointed head coach of, of the club there was not much fanfare but that should be because he's quite mm-hmm. a big name yeah. uh, in, in, in the international circle and uh, even his coaching career is at some real highs, which we'll hopefully cover in the next hour or so. Uh, we have with us today uh, Lion City Sailors head coach Aurelio Vitma. Coach, how are you doing and uh, how's, things, how's things been? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, first time here, so very nice. Thanks. Yes. Uh, we'll get into it right away. Uh, I want to just start off by asking, you know, how did your journey into football begin when you were young? Uh, in Australia, was it, was it uh, always football in your mind or is it something you chanced upon? Uh, well, I... I have, uh, obviously, everyone knows my younger brother, Tony, but no one knows too much about my older brother, Andrew. And um, so he was three years older than me and he played Aussie rules football at primary school. And me being the middle boy, I just followed what my older brother was doing. So I started to play Aussie rules um, for one or two years in primary school. And then um, one day, one of my classmates says, they used to call the... that Aussie rule ball, the egg ball, mm-hmm. and they used to call the our football the wog ball. And um, he said, "Stop playing that egg ball and come and play um, football." Mm-hmm. Back then, they called it soccer, obviously. Yes. And so, and I was ten years old then, which probably these days is quite late, where mm-hmm. kids are starting at uh, five and six. And um, yeah, and that's where it started, really. And um, that guy's that schoolmates. Um, uh, father was the coach of the school team okay and um yeah just started playing uh, with the school team and then one day um had a knock on the door at my mum and dad's house and it was another coach from uh, another school that we had played he was uh, coaching a club team called woodville soccer club mm-hmm. and he came to my my house my father's and my mum's house and said that we'd like your son to come and play for our club and my father, back then, didn't drive a car. He always had a motorbike. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, sure, if 
if you pick him up for training in the games, not a problem. <laughs> okay. Back then, uh, we paid a $25 registration fee mm-hmm. and and that's how it all started. So at that time, was football or soccer big in Australia? No, no. It was um, um, Aussie rules is always the, the biggest sport. And mm-hmm. then when you come in through to the summer, then cricket is um, extremely big. You got rugby, rugby union, rugby league. That's the beauty of Australia, I suppose. It's because uh, there's such a variety of sports that can be played. But our football is ranked, you know, somewhere third or fourth. And it, again, it depends. Mm-hmm. We had basketball for a while that was, you know, probably second or third. But and then all that sort of disappeared and fans stopped going there. That was maybe 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of a sudden now, now that's picked up again. So, um, look, we can never compete with... Uh, the AFL, the Australian Rules Football, and nor can we compete in the Eastern States with the Rugby League because they have um, over a billion dollar um, uh, TV rights. Mm-hmm. So there's just a huge amount of money, yep. huge amount of money. So, you know, the A-League have to be comfortable with where where they sit in the scope of things in, in sport in mm-hmm. Australia. So for yourself, when did you realize that uh, you could probably make it as a professional footballer. Uh, was that something that came on quite late or early? Uh, well, I started uh, playing football at 10 um, and just became fanatical. Um, I just watched every um, every football show and just probably like a lot of kids these days, just followed Arsenal from when I was got my first Arsenal shirt at 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it just became something that I loved and... Um, as I was getting 13 and 14 and 15, especially when around about the ages of 15, 16, I started to really think, oh, maybe I can do this as a career. And um, and eventually that's where it went. So mm-hmm. are you still a national fan? Of course. How's, how's things? <laughs> are you okay? Better this year. <laughs> so far. So far. So far. We won't talk about last night. I, I have those discussions with my staff. They're all <laughs> Liverpool nuts. <laughs> but well, for yourself, I think your career did take off uh, pretty fast after that. I think you went on to play in quite a number of countries. So, for example, I think how did the chance to move to Belgium uh, come about? I think that was the first overseas move, right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, well, you say fast, but really it's not fast. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's a long grind. There's um, a lot of hard work. Um, I went probably when I was 19, no, no, probably a little bit later. When I was about 20, 21, I went overseas. I trained with Fiorentina and Grasshoppers in Zurich and um, just to get a bit of a taste of what it was like. I knew some people there and I have some family there in obviously in Italy. Um, so that was great. And that really gave me the, you know, the will to, you know, become a professional probably at that point as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came back, played another c- couple of seasons in the, the old National League, um, which was the old First Division in Australia, and then uh, I think it was about 24, I decided I'd just have a, another go. Um, and I went to Belgium and, um, yep, had a signed the contract there with a club called um, Carvey Kortrek, um in the western part of uh, Belgium, and that's where it sort of kicked off. Mm-hmm. Uh, from going from Australia to Belgium, was a step up huge or yeah, it did was. you feel it? Yeah, it was. Um, in Australia back then, uh, we were semi-pros, so we trained three, four times a week plus a game, mm-hmm. and you had a job. Um, so, you know, we were working from uh, nine to five and then getting your bag and 
and racing to the training by six o'clock and and that's what it was that was semi-pro so when i went to uh belgium everything was different the, the my first six months was very tough because all of a sudden from being a semi-pro training three four times a week and a game we were having uh monday one session a double on um tuesday sometimes wednesday off a double on thursday so the load became twice as much and the first six months was very difficult for me. Um, but after that first six months, I went home for Christmas. They had a winter break. Like they call it a winter stop for two or three weeks before they resume training. And I went home, had Christmas. And when I came back in the new year, for me, it felt like a, a second year, um, starting a, a second season. And then I didn't have any problems. Because mm -hmm. they're, they're just crazy, They the, the amount of work they do. And Belgium is a country where... Um, there's a lot of good football there, but they work and they run. And, you know, the Tuesdays I used to dread because um, Tuesday morning was a 7K run in the forest and and those guys were just like <laughs> greyhounds, just mm -hmm. bang, running, running, running around. And it was very, very different, something that I wasn't used to. But as I said, that second part of that uh, first year in the new year, mm -hmm. I felt very different, a lot stronger and um, never had a problem really. Nice. What were you working as in Australia when you were doing? doing uh, I was a rep for a wine company. Ah, yep. Okay. So, um, so it was an office job. Well, so not really. Oh, yeah, no. yeah, not so much office. <laughs> I was out, out on the road a lot, which ah. was good. Driving around, just going to uh, restaurants and bars mm. and wine shops and selling wine and alcohol spirits and all those sorts of things. So the um, when I first went to. Um, Adelaide City back then that was in the in the National League um, we got a new coach and he was good friends with um, this company Festival City Wines and they were sponsors of the club and I wasn't working and he goes no you have to work so he brings me into the office oh. and meets <laughs> meet the boss and he goes right starting Monday and that's <laughs> but that's how it worked in those days mm -hmm. um, yeah just you were working and uh and uh, earning a living working and uh, earning a living playing football. So how do you balance the training side of things and work? Yeah, just, just you do it. Do it. as I said, you you know, you, you get up in the morning, you go mm. to work, you're, you're at work by nine and you finish by five and you either be organized and pack your mm. bag and take it with you to work and from work you go straight to training or, or you go home if you've got enough time, you go home and get your belongings and, and then go off to training. Mm -hmm. And that's how it was. That's how it was. Even um, and that was the first division in Australia at that period. Um, and even on uh, game day, if because we played interstate, so if we went to Melbourne, for example, we, mm. we would leave eight o'clock in the morning, catch a flight, get there, get into a hotel, have some lunch, play the game straight after the game, get on a flight, go back home. So mm. it was um, yeah, very different to what it is now as a professional mm. football in Australia. It's, you know, you're going into state, you're leaving the day before, you're in a nice hotel, you know, you get up in the morning, just like a normal professional would be. But mm -hmm. back then it was semi-professional. You've been fortunate enough to play in uh, Holland, Spain, Switzerland and Japan. Is it safe to assume that Spain was the toughest uh, test? Yeah. Um, Spain was very, very tough because... Um, this was in the La Liga, yes? There was in La Liga, yep. I played at a club called Tenerife. Uh, which is on the one of the Canary Islands off the coast, um, and that was tough because there was a hell of a lot of flying. So <laughs> every fortnight you're just on a plane, and it's not just 
you know, a one hour flight, it's, uh, you know, it's probably an hour and a quarter, an hour and a half to get to Madrid, for example. And yep. then if it's, if you have to play up north and you can't get a flight, you have to then catch a bus and, and, and drive up to Saragossa or, or somewhere further up north. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was tough, but it was a great league, great spectacle. Um, culture was fantastic. Something that I, I like in, in terms of, you know, the food and things like that. And um, the the only downside playing at Tenerife is it's you're on an island, yeah. So one the travel and you know days off it's very difficult then to jump on a plane, go to Madrid or go to Barcelona or go somewhere. Um, but when you're living on the mainland, you can do that because everything is close. You can just get in your car and drive for a few hours, and you're probably in the next country. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I had a great time there. Had a great time there, and um, yeah, great experience. All right. Of course, you you made your debut for the Socceroos. Uh, was it in 1991 when you got your first call up, and who gave you the call up? And was that the proudest moment that you had in your career thus far? Uh, I think yeah, it was it 89 or 91? I can't remember something mm-hmm. like that. Um, yeah, it was uh, Socceroo coach or the Australian national coach back then was a Hungarian Serbian called Frank Arok, and um, yeah, he was in a phase where he was uh, almost finishing his career. And he started to rejuvenate the um, Socceroo squad, and uh, I was a number of one of a number of young guys who uh, had an opportunity. Um, I think the first game we played back then, they used to play a lot of club games. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Very different for what it is now. And um, yeah, I think we played Hajduk Split. I think we played guys like Boban were playing in those in those games and. Uh, um, I think we played a couple of games um, in Melbourne from memory. So for yourself, would you have ever imagined that you go on to become captain for the Socceroos later on in your career? No, you don't think of anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just, you're doing what you love. And I think the most important thing is that you have a passion um, for whatever you do. Um, and it's it's not a chore. It's nothing. It's, you know, you, you love the game and you, you're working, you're earning a living as well. And uh, yeah. Just as as time goes by, things happen, and yeah, you never, you can never plan for those sort of things. Yep. One day, um, yeah, one day you become a little bit older, and they say, okay, um, they're looking for a captain, and they nominate you as captain, and it's a proud moment. I think maybe I had seven or eight games as as captain through that period, so it was great. It's great to know, but uh, when you were in the soccer squad, uh, it was at the same time as your brother, am I right? So yeah. Was there ever yeah. uh, like a sibling sibling rivalry going on at the time? Ah, uh, but we had rivalry when we were growing up in the backyard. I uh, know we used to. Well, it was it was funny because um, we used to just always. I'd put him in goals, and you know we'd have games like right. You have one minute to score as many goals as possible. If you score a goal, you got to go back to the starting point. We had like a a close line that'll be the starting point. You have to take the ball back there and then quickly try <laughs> to score and. And we did that for a long time. And, you know, if the ball was, used to go over the fence, I used to you know, put my hands there together and <laughs> and give him what we call a boost and, and lift him over the fence to get the ball. And um, if I wasn't happy with something, I would just punch him in the arm or punch <laughs> him in the head a few times. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, he just went from being a little skinny kid to boop, he went to six foot three overnight like this. And I went, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, won't, I won't be punching him anymore. Let's talk about some uh, moments in your Socceroos career. So I think one of it is you got to play against uh, Diego Maradona. Yeah. Uh, that was during a 1993 qualifying tie. How was the experience like? 
Yeah, it was great. Um, look, he was coming sort of in and out of the drug problem yep. that he had and um, yet they finished fifth. Back in, in that time there, um, we, we had to play the South American fifth place nation mm-hmm. for the final spot. And he was sort of coming out of retirement, whatever he was doing, and he came to play those games. And even though he was a little bit overweight, um, but still not in bad condition. And, you know, for a long time you saw him play and, you know, I think everyone was sort of a, a fan yes. um, of his. Um, but when you actually see him live, even the condition that he was in, it was just his foot movement and the way he's thinking and the way he moves. And I just always thought, shit, just imagine this guy five or six years ago yeah. when he was at his peak. You couldn't stop him, no chance. It's a bit like, uh, you know, the comparisons with Messi, Ronaldo, mm-hmm. you know, it's, yeah, they were the, the best players in the in the world at that stage. Was that uh, one of the most uh, memorable uh, matches that you have played uh, while with Australia? Yeah, that was one of many. Um, because I, for me, the, Every single game for uh, the national team was uh, was memorable. You know, sure, what, some had more significance than others, but uh, to play for your national team for me is no better feeling. And I, I remember we always had problems because back then we were playing in Europe. Then they never they never they never used to have the um, the FIFA weeks or the FIFA windows. So um, every time we were called for a national team game, I. You know, the club used to get a, a a letter or an email, or back then was probably a fax, mm-hmm. and um, they said, "Oh, your national team has called. You've got a game, but you're not going." Oh, and I went, oh, "Bullshit! I'm not. I'm I'm going." And so I always went back, even though when I wasn't allowed to. Um, but there was, as I said, there was no FIFA window. There's no FIFA rules back back then like it is now. So everything stops now for 10 days or 12 yeah. days. Do you get in trouble with your club? Yeah, so, every, so I left and went and played for my national team. And then when I came back, always back in the reserves, always. <laughs> but, but it was one, something you were willing weeks. to do. Sorry? It was something you were more than oh, willing yeah. to do. And, and most of the Australians at that time, you know, we had guys like uh, Graham Arnold, Stan Lazaridis, these guys there, they did the same thing. Right? We were going back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was such a special bond. It was unbelievable. The bond, even it still exists. It's like a the the culture that that national team not just that national team but just the whole setup doesn't matter what era it is there's such a strong culture of that friendship and you want to be there wow. um it's been like that for such a long time it's great to hear mm. uh talking about memorable moments i think one of it was the 1998 fifa world cup qualification game against iran <laughs> <laughs> he's already wincing it was 97 because 98 90- we would have been in front yeah, so, yeah. Sorry, so 97 so <laughs> When I look at the team list here, there's so many names that are familiar that Singaporeans will be familiar with. There's Craig Foster yep. in, the, in the Australian lineup, uh, Graham Arnold, who's now a Socceroos coach as well. Yep. Um, this game, uh, I've read about it, and they say that you know in, while we were playing in Iran, there were dead chickens thrown onto the pitch and oh, all. Yeah, it was crazy stuff. Yeah. Uh, how how much of it do you remember? What happened on the day? Iran was crazy because there was 128,000 people. Wow. Uh, and no women because. Mm-hmm. No women allowed in the yes. stadium, obviously. And um, like from this distance, you could not talk to your teammate, you know, within a couple of meters because the 128,000 people in that stadium was just deafening. And um, it was like, you're just mm-hmm. trying to get a message across, absolutely impossible to do. So you just, it was like just actions with your head and nonverbal communication. 
Um, and that's what happened. And we, we had a great game there. Um, I think Harry Kuehl scored, made it one each. Mm-hmm. Um, from memory, we were under quite a bit of pressure as well. Uh, it's quite uh, understandable when you're playing in that sort of uh, those sort of conditions. And then, uh, yeah, and then we went to Melbourne and we absolutely just smashed them. And um, I missed several chances in the first half. It probably could have been over at halftime. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got ourselves 2-0 up and with about 20 minutes to go. And then we had that episode where what they call the serial pest was a guy who was every major sporting event, he'd go and interrupt it. So at the big racing, horse racing carnival, he'd run as the horses were going, he'd run onto the mm-hmm. track and cause havoc um, in this particular game. He jumped the fence, came onto the stadium, jumped on the crossbar, pulled it down, broke the net, and then the game stopped for 20 minutes. Okay. Yep. The game stopped for 20 minutes while they fixed the goal. And everyone, we were staying there trying to discuss, come on, it's only 20 minutes to go, boys. Let's make sure that we keep everything nice and tight and got some balls, keep warm, keep warm, keep warm. And then it was like a different game. Last 20 minutes, bang, we conceded one goal. Bang, we conceded a second one. Two all, we're out. If you go find this guy now, will you go and find him? The guy who... His put- name's Peter Hoare. <laughs> <laughs> will you- the serial pest. Yeah, no, it was just... Uh, it was it's probably in jail now. <laughs> it was just... Uh, Absolute disaster. And we had some close to 100,000 people at the MCG and Melbourne Cricket Ground. Wow. Um, yeah, it was the atmosphere. I still get goosebumps now because <laughs> when – and it, since that day, the national team, when they play the big qualifier, the whole crowd sings the national anthem. And it's – see, I'm, now I'm still getting <laughs> – I'm getting goosebumps now. That's That's the – incredible electric feeling that you have when you're playing with the national you, you team You, of course, there. scored the second goal on the night. Um, when you scored and, you, and, and the whole crowd ran into... Uh, for yourself, do you think it's the greatest moment in football for you? Uh, do you think anything else stops that? Uh, yeah, I, again, there's... It, that's just a moment. You know, the Argentina game I scored mm-hmm. against Argentina in Sydney, that was a moment. The That one there I scored as well. Um, as I said... I don't have any real favorite moments. That would have been even a, a bigger moment had we qualified, um, but it just wasn't meant to be. Even in the Iran team list, um, there are the two players that I think Singaporeans will remember, which is uh, Mohamed Kakpoor and uh, Hamid Reza Esteli, who were former yeah. Geelang, Geelang United players oh, at that time. Oh, they played did they? They played oh, okay. Geelang, yep. yeah. Uh, famous, famous names yeah. actually in yeah. the scene. Um, moving on to another moment in, in, in Socceroos' career is the Australia-American Samoa game. Uh, which, <laughs> which happened in 2001. Uh, I talk about this game because it's in the world record books. Uh, yeah. You guys won the game 31-0. <laughs> uh, my question is, as a player in that game, how do you keep going on? I mean, does it, is it a question you have to ask yourself, like, can we just stop it here? Like, why are we still doing this? How do you feel? So yeah. ref, call it already. <laughs> yeah. No, we'll, we'll back, as you know, back then we were in Oceania. And um, so our major rival was New Zealand. But we had to play the minnows, whether it's America, Samoa, Fiji, Samoa. Um, but our guys were just ruthless. They did not give a shit. Yeah. If it's one nil, no, it has to be two. If it's two, it has to be three. If it's three, it gets to ten, and then, and and Archie Thompson was everything he touched. He didn't. He he could just turn his back and 
the ball will hit his ass and <laughs> and go in. It was one of those. But I, yeah, we get to the point where we feel sorry. But the, the I mean, you should have stopped. If you were sorry, you should have stopped like maybe 10, but 31. <laughs> no, it was, How sorry were you? <laughs> it was really, that's, that's what I'm saying. They're just ruthless. They don't give yeah. a shit. They, they honestly don't care. Well, they're there playing in the World Cup qualifier. Well, okay. You put out a team, we're going to put out a team and then yeah. just smash it. That's yes. how it is. So would you welcome then the decision to, for Australia to move into AFC, which took place, I think, a, a few years later? 2006. Was it yes. Was yeah, it was. It was because the biggest problem that we had and we faced that that through that period was that the only meaningful game, meaningful game was New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So winning 31-0, 10-0, 12-0, 5-0-whatever gives you no preparation for a game one like New Zealand because it's always harder. And and secondly, trying to then go play the fifth nation in South America, which that time was um, Argentina. Um, and then previous years after that was two times Uruguay. Mm-hmm. One, we didn't qualify. And the second time in 2006, I think it was, we did qualify against Uruguay. So the blessing for us was to have meaningful games like it is now. So you go into a group, you play, you know, 12, 14 games through the, through the qualifying periods and you just match hardened. And that, that's made the, the, the biggest difference of all. And that was the best move that they could ever make. Although I don't think we're too, too, um, Welcome. too well-like. Yes. Yeah. Too, too well. I remember when this, this move happened, I thought, um, they were going, Australia was going to win all the games, but yeah. hasn't been the case. No, it's not. Yeah, it hasn't been no. the case. And I think personally, I welcome the I welcome the move because I think Asian club, Asian countries can also benefit from this. Yeah. Mm. But but you it's do not, feel it that that you're not that Australia isn't really welcome in the FC. You feel that way? Probably it's a lot better now. But yeah. initially, initially it was mm. um yeah uh, as you said they th- they thought we were going to go there and just you know wipe the floor off, but. International football has changed a hell of a lot. You know, 10 years ago, even the, over the last couple of years, you have a look at all the minor nations once upon a time that are very, very strong. Vietnam, for example, mm-hmm. your neighbor here. Hey, you know, once upon a time, that, that was a 5-6-0 gimme. Yeah. <laughs> Not anymore. We we used to give them five many, many times and it probably 2013, 14, probably that period, they beat our under-20s 5-1. And lot, they started spending a lot more money, better coaches, uh, a lot more professionalism. They played a lot more games, really toughened them up. Japan, for we always had a, a big one of our biggest rivalries was always Japan, and it was always a you know a dog fight. And um, but um, even their kids, they set up their under twenty three Olympic team to play in the third division. Our under twenty three has never played because. The most of the senior coaches of the A League were always worried about results yeah. and not developing, so they never really played any kids. So, a lot of that period over the last eight to ten years, most of our under twenty threes hardly played. They developed like later, you know, people like Jamie McLaren, Aaron Moy, and I. They, they were hardly playing. All of a sudden, once they've got past that under twenty three stage, then all of a sudden they started playing a lot more. So we had a, and we probably still have that now a period where we develop a lot later than um, than most footballers. Mm-hmm. For yourself, the the manager career started off uh, in Australia. You moved back to Australia in 2005 or 2004 or was it before that? 
uh, no, a little bit before that, two, 2002, I think it was, two, 2002 or 2003. Mm-hmm. And you started off as an assistant coach first? Uh, no, well, we, I, I played, um, I played a few more years in the, in the national league, mm-hmm. then the national league, um, folded. And then that was that period of about 15, 18 months where the national league had finished and the A league was created and I was 37 going 38. Mm-hmm. So I started preseason with Adelaide United. So the last year of the national league, we formed Adelaide United. And then we had that one 15-month, 18-month hiatus where there was no football. Then I started that pre-season at 38 years of age and um, we got to about one month before the start of the season and I got the dreaded tap on the shoulder from the coach (laughs) and he said, come on, let's go have a coffee. And uh, he goes, look, it's going to be difficult for you to play this year and um, I'm going to play some of the younger guys and uh, look, my advice is finish up, retire and, and get into coaching. And I was 38 and what was I going to do? I could have kicked and screamed and said, no, no way. But I thought really there's no point. So get into coaching and already started my badges prior to that. And, um, and that's what I did. I became an assistant coach to John Cosmina at Adelaide United for the first year of the A-League, actually the first two years. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the third year, I got the um, position of head coach. Do you feel prepared at that time? You think you are, but you never are, mm-hmm. you, honestly. And and the more coaches that I speak to, they always want the opportunity. And, and I wasn't waiting for the opportunity. I, I was happy to spend three or four years as an assistant coach, learn as much as I could. Um, but then John got sacked and we were going into a Champions League and we had a couple of weeks to prepare. And that was my initiation jumping straight into not A-League, into Champions League. So that's how my first job started. Um, And you are never prepared because coaching is completely different, completely different from uh, from being a player. I I would love to still be a player. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing better, trust me, nothing better. Is is Um, the responsibilities, you think? Yeah, everything changes all Mm -hmm. of a sudden. As As a footballer, as a player, you got to worry about one thing, yourself. And make sure you're prepared before you get to training. You know what you're doing at training, your, your diet, your physical conditioning, what happens after physio, massage. You're all you're by yourself preparing what you need to do to help the team. All of a sudden, you become a coach. You've got 23, 24 players. You've got um, six or seven coaching staff. You've got half a dozen medical mm-hmm. um, staff. Then you got to deal with management. You got to deal with media. You got to deal with the owners. Everything changes. Everything changes, and you're not prepared for that. Yeah, you only get better as time goes by with the experience. experience. Yeah, and but you you managed to bring Adelaide into the AFC Champions League final. Um, was was it on the back of a tough first season? Um, and and what did you learn from the first season that helped you in the second? I th- I think that first year, that first series in the Champions League. No one knew anything about the Champions League. We we went there. I think we had um, Shadong Luneng and team from Vietnam. I can't remember who else exactly it was, but it was very difficult because you had to win the you had to top the group to advance to the next stage. Mm-hmm. 
and we came third. I think we drew we we drew three games and we lost three games that first that first round. But after that, um, I was confident going into the next because um, we had been uh, premiers the, that year, so we were going into the next um, Champions League, and I was confident that we'd be able to do well because we learned a lot from that first um, that first foray into the Champions League. And even our fans really didn't know what well, what's the Champions League, Asian Champions League about. You know, we started sort of getting some fans coming to the games and then when we went into the the second time, um, everything had changed. We learned a hell of a lot. We, you know, we spent over ten thousand dollars on sending guys to all the when the teams were announced, um, they did a reconnaissance mission of every change room, every pitch we were going to play on. Uh, so we were super, super prepared and, um, yeah. And then everything sort of just fell to place. There was, we went there knowing the, yeah, you know what, we're going to play in Vietnam. It's, there might be a frog <laughs> No, seriously <laughs> on the ground. And there was, you know, and you know what, you best to, after the game, go straight back to the hotel and have a shower there because the, the change rooms are disgusting. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I wouldn't even let my dog in there. So all those things, we were super prepared and the players knew what to expect. So we went there in a very, very good frame of mind and we came top, we topped the group, mm -hmm. which um, was not easy to do, um, but we managed to do it. Do you think it's a good indication of your, of your time in Australia as a coach when even till today when there's uh, vacancies in, in the job and your name still gets mentioned uh, to those jobs, do you think it's a good indication of, of how well you did uh, in your time at Adelaide? Yeah, but it was a long time ago, you know. I, I don't live in the past because uh, I think if you live in the past, then uh, one, you've got nothing to look forward to and and things change. You know, that was, I, I don't even know what year was that, what, 2008 or 2010? 2009. Night. Yeah. <laughs> I was close. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Uh, that's a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And football has changed. Yes. Uh, and um, as I said, even the format has changed. The format there was back then if you if you won if you drew a game, you, you used to get uh, ten thousand dollars. If you we we got to the final, the winner the winner took eight hundred, I think, eight hundred thousand and the loser, the runner up took four hundred thousand. Now it's completely different. You know, um, you know, now there's two qualifying from, from each group and, mm -hmm. uh, and it's so much different. And, and now with the, the, the giants of, uh, Chinese football, you know, and, yeah. and Japan has always been strong and, and that, that's always been difficult games anyway, mm -hmm. but you know, you're going to get into champions league. You're going to play someone from China. You're going to play someone from Japan and not easy games. Of course, fast forward to 2018, you were appointed as the director of football at Adelaide. Uh, how different was the role from coaching? What do you do as a director? <laughs> yeah, no, of football? that was a disaster. No. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, I was home at that period, and um, uh, the owner of Adelaide I've known for I don't know how long, well over a decade, and um, he said, "Look, you're not doing anything now." And and the reason I was home because we there was we had a lot of family issues. I, my sister passed away. Then. My father passed away, and so I stayed home, and I had no interest in in moving abroad. And um, he said, "Look, just while you're here, you know football, you know the club, just become the football director." And I go, "I, I know zero about being a football director. <laughs> sure, I know the game and youth football and youth development and things like that, but I said, 
I have no administrative skills, mm-hmm. no chance. And he goes, don't worry about that. We'll have lots of people to do all the admin work and the paperwork. And I said, all right, my club, it's, you know, that's a massive uh, place in my heart, that uh, Adelaide United. And I went, okay, no problems. So I went there and started to to work there. And, and again, that is completely different role. All of a sudden, you got four teams to look after. Yeah. We had the first team, we had the youth team, we had uh, um, the younger women's and the women's senior team there as well. And then all the stakeholders, the uh, local FA with um, the underpinning teams as well. Um, so it was very, very different, very different. And I did my best and I just hated it, to be honest. You still prefer coaching? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> After about six months, I said to the owner, Pete, I said, Pete, mate, this is not happening. <laughs> I said, this is not happening. He goes, what do you mean? You're doing a great job. And I was, yeah, because you want me to stay. And I said, look, I, I miss the field. I miss the grass. And he goes, you can still go on the grass. <laughs> and I said, no, I really miss that. The interaction. Basically. That interaction, mm-hmm. that contact with the players mm-hmm. and the staff and and that's really where my passion is. Mm-hmm. And I and I always said to myself that you got to do what you love. If you don't do that, you're just pulling your hair out. And I don't have much hair left. So <laughs> I said, no, nah, I want to coach. That's what I want to do. And well, what did you hit the most about that, that job? The admin. The admin. <laughs> yeah, no, it was just crazy. Absolutely mm. crazy. And I sat on my desk was not long after a couple of weeks and then, you know, people introduced themselves to me, you know, marketing, finance, mm. the, the, the girls, coaches, uh, you know, the, the, the young team coaches, uh, management, all the rest of it. All of a sudden every day after started to, you know, know I knew already a, lo- a lot of those people anyway, but every day get to my office, get my coffee, put my computer on the desk, about to turn it on, about to sit down, someone walks in. Uh, Vidi, um, you know what? We need this, we need that, we need that, we need that. Uh, okay. He'd walk out. Next person, a minute later, would walk in. Uh, Vidi, you know what? Uh, you need to do this, you need to do that. We we have to make sure that we've got these goals set up here. We have All of a sudden, everyone's – and I said, hey, hang on a minute. Where were you going before I actually got here? Who were you complaining to? Oh, no one. I said, so now I'm here, you guys start complaining to me. And I just, it was just a full, full day of that sort of crap. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, although I, I handled it okay, but I just hated it. I just hated it. I said, no, I'm, no that's, that's not what I want to do. And one day, was, as I said, I was probably there about six months and just after Christmas. It actually was in the January because we just finished the transfer window. And we had to sign a, we were signing one striker. I said, after we sign the striker, that's it, I'm done. And that happened almost at the end of January. But but it did give you experience in terms of uh, handling negotiations when it comes to transfers and also yeah, it was helpful yeah, as yeah. well? Yeah, as I said, I was only there for six months. So yeah, I started to learn about all those things and then all, all the, the the procedures, the the rules from not just the, the game rules, but you know, how the uh, youth league runs, how the first team all the crap that you know you just get email after email after email my, my best friend and my, the best button i had on the on my computer was the delete button <laughs> <laughs> yep delete <laughs> yep delete i won't see that again so yeah it was just the admin side was crazy and and i think it looked to be honest it is a great job 
and my one of my very good friends who was part of the interview panel when I got my first job at Adelaide United was a guy called Michael Petrillo and he was um, the football director of Adelaide United at that time slash CEO and now he's at Melbourne City and he's a guy who was a coach and he also was super smart with the admin side of it and if you have to have a strong admin background mm-hmm. to uh, to be a football director and it just that just wasn't for me sitting behind the desk you, you belong on the field, basically. I need to put the boots on. <laughs> well, I don't wear boots, but sand shoes for these days. But yeah, yeah, I just needed to be on the grass. Before we move on from the A-League, just wanted to ask you, because we were having a discussion earlier about how uh, we wanted to ask you if there's any player uh, in the A-League that can make it here. But and I, my response was, I think every A-League player can make it here. For yourself, do you agree with my assessment or, or do you think that um, that could be a, a transfer on both sides. Do you think Singaporean players here can make it in the A-League? Well, I think they have, haven't they? Uh, Safwan went over. Mm. Correct. Do you uh, think more uh, can? Uh, absolutely. absolutely. I think there's some, some very good players here. And I think your national team is a very good team. Okay. But, yep. I just think it needs a little bit more experience and um, a little bit more backing in terms of I, I, I've seen some games in your national team and I, I was having this conversation with someone in the taxi a couple of days ago. He was a football fan. <laughs> and I, I don't know why that stadium is not full. That, for me, that has to be like you have not long ago we had the National Day and everyone's going crazy and tooting their horns and there's fireworks and everything. Your national games should be like that. Well, I, I'm not sure what the stadium fits, maybe 40,000, 50,000. Mm-hmm. should be full. should be the Singaporean flags, all the kids wearing the Singapore strip. That's how it should be. And I, and I, I honestly, I can't see why not. That's where the yeah. passion is. And I know what it was like here 10 years ago. I had yeah. lots of stories. We need to find that again, especially for your national team. It should be a day out. It should yeah. be something that the whole country just glued to the TV because they do that for the EPL. Yep. Which mm. drives me crazy because <laughs> they don't do that for for the national team or even yeah. local football and, and and also yeah. local football. Correct, correct. But but you yeah. firmly believe that um, certain Singaporean players have the quality to to make oh, an A league. Yeah, for sure. But why for do you sure. think uh, clubs in the A league or even South Korea, Japan don't really look at? Is it because we don't market our players well enough? Well, it's probably because they seem there's oh, Singapore. You ranked a hundred and I don't know what, and yeah, really. Th- one is probably because they're a little bit naive because they actually don't know. Because if you do your homework and search, right, then you will find a lot of good players here. Mm-hmm. A lot of good players. And yeah, it's different. The A-League is different and there's some cultural differences <laughs> big time. But there is a lot of talented guys here that, yep, yeah, with a little bit of work uh, and it's, it's never easy over there because it, it is – not so much. It is a technical game, but it's also a physical game. And they're the couple of things that probably not so much on the technical technical side, but on the physical side. Back home, they don't stop running. And and football is like that. You have a look at international football. Hey, it's it's up and down. It's not oh, going to sit down and have a cigarette now and uh, you know have a little break. Mm, no, it's just constant work. And they're the sorts of things that I've noticed while I've been here mm-hmm. that has to improve has to improve but without doubt there's a lot of talented players here that, that would do well in the a league for sure it's nice to hear 
Uh, let's move on to your opportunity to come to Singapore. How did did it arrive? Uh, when did you first uh, learn of the of the chance to come here and coach in, in the S- SPL? Some, some crazy guy called Badri was <laughs> on the phone. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, I just had some contact and uh, and to be honest, first I went, oh, yeah, I'm not really, um, without putting too much thought into it. And then uh, they said, look, just come here and let's have a discussion. And we had a few phone calls first and come here, have a look, have a look around. And and to be honest, when I came here, you know, when you meet someone for the first time, there's just an instant attraction. And I had just a very good feeling with management that I met. And um, yeah. Had you been to Singapore prior to that? Yep. Many times, but probably the last time was about 10 years. So when I came here, I was like, oh, shit, yeah, what, well, <laughs> where's all this money come from? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, it's changed a hell of a lot, a hell of a lot. And it's it's fantastic. It's a great city. So great when, city. When, when you came here as a Lion City Sailors coach, uh, were you aware that um, the club was going to be rebranded from Home United and moving on to this new direction? You were already aware of all these things? Well, I met, I'd met Forrest um, when I first came and... Um, and the other management team and um and at that stage it was still work in progress and they mm-hmm. said yeah it may happen in the in the new year um more than likely that it would happen um but that wasn't the motivating factor mm-hmm. because that was happening obviously that is fantastic because that's going to hopefully shift the thought process in my opinion um of the perception of football here in Singapore so that's a bonus, a big bonus. Um, we we just had an energy and a synergy that everything fit like a glove. Mm-hmm. What my philosophy was, my thinking about football, what the management wanted to do. Um, and then on top of that was potentially when Forrest bought the club, what was going to happen. And so everything really fit. And and we had really good, as I said, really good synergy, great relationship with the management. Um, and for me, it was a no-brainer. It's been a weird year so far. I mean, I'm sure you know. <laughs> very, very, very. <laughs> but how have you very. found the time here in Singapore so far? Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, as I said, sometimes I pull my hair out with some things that happen around football and yeah, and the lack of thought for football. And I understand also, you know, education is a massive part. And I also know that football, there's a great opportunity to have a great career as a footballer, Mm -hmm. but you can do both because I come from a background back home where a lot of our players back home do both. They get a a degree while they're actually training Mm -hmm. and playing and they just find, they, they know how to balance time to study and time to train and they're full, they're full time. They're full-time footballers and they're doing either part-time mm-hmm. depending on the study, either part-time or full-time study and they, they manage. But you've got to be super organized. If you're not super organized, you can't do that. If you're going to go one day, yeah, yeah now I'm going to just go to training. Football's not going to be there forever. Mm-hmm. So you have to be smart and making sure that you have cover you have something in your back pocket that, you know what, when football's finished, I'm going to go into business, I'm going to go into sports science or whatever it is that you want to do, but you got to have it. And I can't see why that can't work here. Just more thought needs to be put into it. I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so. And I think I think what Forrest and 
and the club is doing now um, is going to be a, a template, we hope, for what, what potentially can happen in the future, putting a lot of money into our um, 25, 12-year-olds and, uh, and see what happens, uh, how they develop over the next four years. Mm-hmm. As we know, there's lots of different issues. You've got NS and, um, and that's not easy and, and that's something that has to be done, but you can overcome that. The earlier they go, uh, the better it is going to be for them because you really lose most times two years of football if you if you don't touch a football for two years in those really critical ages when you're developing it can pose a problem. Mm-hmm. Good thing for us we got like Safula and and Naki. Uh, Mamat just left not long ago. Um, um, Amruddin has just finished his NS, so you know they can just concentrate full time on on their football and whatever else they want to do my advice would be if they don't have any uh academic background that they, they can still do that they were you st- aware of the landscape here in singapore or was it something that took you by surprise when no you well we had all those discussions when mm. i first came here when i mm. spoke to management but it's not until you're here for three months mm. that everything really sinks in yeah mm. and yeah, and then I was going like, oh, shit. So, yeah, I understand that's how it is, and yeah. some of those things like NS, you can't change that. Um, but um, and and study. Well, we we brought three young kids in um, from our under twenty ones into our first team over the last three or four weeks, and they go to school, and that's fine when it's time to go to school in the morning and depending on what time we train, sometimes mm-hmm. we train in the morning, sometimes we train in the afternoon and they go to school a hundred percent. You got to go to school, right? But then when school's finished and you can get to training at night, then great. Then you come. So they're averaging, you know, three, three sessions a week, four sessions a week with us and which is great. Yep. So, um, yeah, as I said, I just come from a different background things that happen in Australia, can't work here mm-hmm. and things that probably happen here won't work in Australia, but I'm not, I came here with an open mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I come here with my own thinking about how football should be played, but also in consultation and discussion with the coaches and I've got great coaching staff. I have to use the strength of what Singapore footballers bring mm-hmm. and and the landscape of football here in in, in Singapore, mm-hmm. and that's how it should work. Because yes. I come, I, it's, I'm one foreign guy coming into your country. I got to understand the culture first and foremost. If I don't understand that, then forget it. It's not going to work. Mm. So I have to give and take. That's that's how it is. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, but um, in Singapore, one of the criticism leveled at uh, some of the guys who got the chance to play overseas was they were not strong enough mentally. So. Uh, some of them, without mentioning names, I think they, they had overseas stints and they would come back after one or two weeks and they would complain about the food, uh, being yep. away from family and whatnot. Yep. Uh, for yourself, uh, you have traveled the, the globe, I would say Japan, Spain, and now in Singapore. Do you sometimes feel like people on the outside of football don't necessarily understand the pressures and the, I would say even loneliness that uh, uh, someone who's playing straight overseas goes through? So I think yep. uh, for yourself, I was reading uh, how you even had to miss your mom's funeral uh, yep. because of you being... Uh, with work and all. Yep. So do you sometimes feel that people don't understand the- Well, that was a little bit different. It wasn't work, it was because <laughs> our great prime minister didn't allow me back in the country. <laughs> that was 
that's what happened. That was due that to the quarantine. That was due to yeah. That was just had started the um, the international um, flights and international visitors. Well, coming back from international flights was mm -hmm. banned. So, so you were here. Uh, I was here. Okay. Yep. I was here and ready to leave. Uh, I was leaving on a Tuesday, and I can't remember exactly the dates. Um, and that Sunday afternoon, he's called a press conference and said, no more international flights coming in. Bang, gone. And that's how I miss my mum's funeral. Mm -hmm. But um, I think the overall scheme of like, you know, being away yeah. from family. Yeah, no, it's very difficult. Very difficult. And like, like here, I'm here on my own. My, you know, I have two older girls, um, 19 and 17. Um, my oldest one just finished high school last year. So... And my youngest has this year plus one more of high school to finish. So it's almost, it, it really is impossible to move them and to, to move them overseas. Um, the only way you can do that is once they finish their schooling, if they have a gap year, whatever, or when they're very young. Mm -hmm. And all the coaches that I've spoken to in that are coaches as career coaches and go overseas, they fit in one of those molds. They either their kids are young and they've got the whole family with them or their kids uh, are older, they've gone and done other things. So, you know, the coach and the wife can be living in the same place. Mm -hmm. At the moment for me, that's not possible. And it is tough. It was even tough as a footballer. I went overseas when I was 24 years of age. Already my thought was I'm going to try to play some national team games and go overseas because back then in the late 80s, that was early 90s actually, the Australian footballers were not known overseas. Mm -hmm. We had one or two maybe doing okay. And they were going, they, they thought, oh, no, you guys play rugby. You don't play football. <laughs> and so it was very difficult to get in at that stage. So my decision was try to get half a dozen um, international caps under your belt and go there with some sort of name. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. A lot of kids now are going 17, 18. And as you said, it gets a little bit tough. You know what? No, I want to go home. It, it, it might have happened to the Singaporean, some Singaporean players. It happens to the Australian players as well. One, because I think they go too young. If you're, you know, in your early 20s when you're a little bit more mature and, and ready, then I'm not always going to say that it's going to always work out fine because it's ruthless. You're going overseas. Uh, it is ruthless. You go to Europe. You're you're a foreigner taking uh, a local's place. Hey, you better be good because uh, you'll get your ass kicked 100. Mm -hmm. I went at 24, as I said, and those first six months there was times that I cried myself to sleep because I was on my own and knew no one, didn't know the language, and so it was hard. So you have to adapt. So for example, I I went to Belgium and. First of all, I was on trial and I was on, on trial there for two weeks. I had gone to a club previously, a club called Ekron, and I trialed there quite well for a, for a week and the coach says, no, nah, we're not going to take you. So I went and stayed in a hotel for another week. Then my agent says, I got you another trial at Quartrek. Go there. Went there for two weeks. For two weeks, no one said a word to me. Not one player. And I thought, what the... F because they see you as a threat. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yep. I went, what the hell is this? I said, okay, no problems. But I was 
more more enough prepared because I'd been overseas a couple of times. I'd, I I spent some some weeks in Fiorentina and Grasshoppers, so I was a little bit around that professional hardcore scene uh, without um, thinking that I was ever going to get a contract there. I went to train, right? And so more or less the second time I went there, I was prepared for all that stuff. But but today, how how do you cope with um, being by yourself? I nah, mean, it's fine. I'm an old man now. <laughs> now now, <laughs> now it's no problem. Uh, and me and my wife, we have a great relationship, and we've always had that. You know, she she's going to go away on a holiday for with her girlfriends for four or five days. Bang, she goes, and mm-hmm. I'll do the same. And we've always just been like that. And sometimes that time apart brings you closer together, and that's how we've been. And so you have, if you don't have the trust, that's forget yeah. about it. It's not going to work. So it works for us. Yep. And um, and they came last year, um, just before COVID. Mm-hmm. The whole family came here, spent a week here, and on when the, it was school holidays, and uh, had a great time, and went back and dying to come back again, but don't know when that's going to happen. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's tough. But in in my view, Singapore players, as I said, they've got enough talent to go overseas, and you have a few that are over. In Malaysia at the moment doing well, um, you have to tough it out because they they are not going to give you anything. You have to earn it, and and you have to be mentally tough. You have to be mentally prepared because yeah, as I said, there's no presence that you have to really earn unless you're a national team player with 40 or 50 caps under your name. Uh, that's completely different. Mm-hmm. But if you're a younger guy, you know, just floating around the the um, the national setup, but not quite established, that becomes a little bit different. All right, one last question uh, for the podcast is, uh, of course, being a head coach of the Lion City Steelers comes at the right time where the winners of this season, if and when it resumes, of course, get to play in the in the AFC Champions League, which is some already a competition they have already done well in. Uh, for yourself, you know, is that the, the, the eventual aim right now, even in the first season, <laughs> to straight away aim for the title in the first season? Well, we have to. We have to be ambition, uh, ambitious. And I, I would think that every team that starts a preseason, although we're probably starting a second one in uh, this year, mm-hmm. every team has to have an ambition to try to be a champion. Whether you're going to get there or not, who knows? Because you need a lot of luck and a lot of things to go your way. Um, but that's our ambition. We have to be a club that, is striving for the championship every year. We may not we may not be ready yet. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to give ourselves the best possibility to do that. And and we have to we have to set the example all the time. And there's probably a lot more hype for us now because of what's happened and we're probably the hunted. Um, but if you think back last year where we finished sixth or something like that, mm-hmm. um Um, so all of a sudden you think, oh yeah, from sixth you're going to go to first. Yep, it's great. We've signed some really good players. I'm really happy with the squad. Next year we'll progress and and improve that squad again because if you stand still, that's exactly what's going to happen. You're going to go backwards. And if you want to be a progressive club, you have to just keep investing and making sure that you're making the right moves to give yourself that chance to try to win the championship every year. That's what we have to do. Yep. We'll now move on to a rapid fire round powered by Active Fit. Go on to active-fit.com. That's A-K-T-I-V-E-F-I-T.com to get your sporting apparels and equipment. Do remember to use our exclusive promo code hashtag TFinalWhistle for a 10% discount off your purchases.
First question is the most impressive player in the SPL so far? Shadan. Shadan. Well, you, but I'm sure you've seen him in training. You're not surprised as well from, at all? No, he's a class player. Yep. Total class. Second question. What surprised you most about Singapore? The weather. <laughs> <laughs> but it gets hot in Australia too, right? It's hot, hot or really hot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, third question. Your favorite local dish? I'm not going to say chicken rice because that's just average. <laughs> There's fish curry. I think we had that with the boys uh, last week. It was very nice. Okay. Fish curry, well. <laughs> okay, fourth question. Your best teammate? My best teammate? Yeah. What era was this one? Oof. You've played with some really good players. Yeah, we've... When you when you're around for twelve years in the national team, you've <laughs> gone through a few players and teammates. Oh, I had a lot. I, I I don't know. My brother John Aloisi, Ross Aloisi, Ned Zelich. Um, yeah, there's there's a shitload really. I, I think that the, the <laughs> I can't names... pinpoint one, but like John Aloisi was my roommate for a long time. Mm-hmm. I never really roomed with my brother. Uh, that wasn't cool. Um, Why not? Why not? Yeah, no, just. <laughs> We slept in the same room, probably the size of this this studio for twenty years. <laughs> uh, you, think I want, <laughs> you think I wanted to stay with him in the hotel room? <laughs> you got to play with uh, Mark Vaduka and Harry Kill as well. Mark Vaduks, mm-hmm. yep. Yeah. Bresciano, Vinigrella, Max Water, yes. yeah, yeah. yeah Bosnich, Bozza as well, <laughs> Crazy Bozza, yeah. Robbie Slater, Graham Arnold, lots of guys. Yeah, mm. yep. Uh, the final question is: What is your wish for Singapore football? To wake up and I could expand mm-hmm. to really wake up, to get back to the passion that they have for EPL, to show that passion for the local football um, and really support it, really make it grow. And it's such a great sport. It should be the number one sport here. I know there's, you guys have got a, a lot of different other sports here as well, which is great, but football is the number one sport in the world. And this should be a country with with the players that you have here. As I, I mentioned that before with the national team, it, it should be one of the biggest events on on any given day when your national team plays. That's what I dream. That's what I dream for you guys to really support, support the game, support the national teams. Like, uh, yeah, you know, when Juventus and... and, and and uh, Tottenham Hotspurs come here and it's different, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very, very different. That's my wish. Yes. Mm. Thank you so much Thanks. for taking your time to join us here on the final whistle. Really appreciate your insights as well. Thank Thanks you so for much. Coming. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Kabir, I really enjoyed that discussion we had mm. with uh, Aurelio Vitma. Yep. So much of insights. Uh, and what really surprised me was that aspect of whether Singaporean footballers can make it in the A-League because uh, I watch the A-League a lot and it's a really competitive football league. Mm. I was surprised that he he was saying, oh, it wouldn't be a problem at all for Singaporean players to play there. Yeah. Uh, how do you find this episode? Uh, it was a good conversation and I think the biggest thing that really caught my attention was the wake up Singapore. Yeah, I think it, it, I've said it, I've said this in previous episodes, it's time to wake up and support our national team and our, our, our league. Mm. In terms of, you know, what he talked about, uh, Singaporean footballers, were you as surprised as me? Uh, not really. I mean, yeah, you, you, I know you watch the Australian League a lot, but I think we've, we've always heard that 
people do regard our players as um talented players they we know we have talented players it's just that the opportunity doesn't come as often as as you like and i mean i'm from the outside looking in i don't i'm, I'm not part of any club or anything but of course i don't think it's so far fetched mm-hmm. now that especially when someone as uh, prof- prolific as um vidma has said something like that mm-hmm. then i think it's more than possible uh, for our our players yeah and, and i thought that episode ended off uh, in a very good note for him to say that you know it's time to wake up like you, mm. like you mentioned as well and i do hope our our singapore football fans uh, come out of the slumber and start supporting mm. our league and our national team like uh, aurelio vidma said i think we would love to see a, a national team game have the fanfare yeah. that other countries have even our neighbors malaysia and uh, he he mentioned that it was uh, it's supposed to be like a day out for everyone yep. and that's, i that's think the way in, it should be yeah and in australia sports is a huge thing it's a, it's a it's their culture and they have actually have public holidays when i think the afl finals mm-hmm. is actually at the holiday so mm-hmm. i i'm not say, i'm not asking for a public holiday every time the national team plays but at least have have something to look forward to lah yeah and i think at the end of the day it's all about the pride and love for your country Uh, and that's it for this week's episode of The Final Whistle. We hope you enjoyed this one. We'll see you again next week.